Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to the Daily Duff Differently. I'm William Friedman, and today we're studying Ketubot 40. Today's Duff picks up with another distinction between the case of the seducer and the rapist. In the course of the short sugya we'll be looking at, we'll see an interesting principle about weighing competing mitzvot and about women's agency. The background for this sugya is the end of the Mishnah on 39a. Given the rabbinic conflation of the laws surrounding the seducer and the rapist, the Mishnah feels the need to explicitly list the remaining contrasting laws. One of those is as follows. Ha'ones shoteh ba'atzitzo v'hamifateh imratzalahotzi motzi. That the rapist drinks from his vase. It's a very strange expression and we'll talk about it in a moment. Um, while the seducer, if he wishes to send out, i.e. to divorce the woman, he may. So obviously, shoteb atzitzo means something like he is forced to remain married to the woman. The Mishnah is a little confused also by this expression, and so it makes explicit what it's talking about. Ketzad shoteb atzitzo, what does it mean, or how is it that he drinks in his vase, from his vase maybe? Afilu hi chigeret, afilu hi suma, va'afilu haita mukat shchin. That even if she were an amputee, even if she were blind, and even if she were afflicted with boils, those are three sort of classic categories where if for some reason you didn't know about it, if, the, if either party didn't know that the other was afflicted in such a way um, before the marriage, and then it only becomes apparent after the marriage, uh, then they have to get divorced, or the the party that didn't know that the other one was afflicted is allowed to get the court to force a divorce without any financial penalty. Um, the reason seems to be that if there exists such a blemish, such a moom, um, as they say in rabbinic literature, then the marriage would likely fail. There has to be full understanding, knowledge, and consent at the beginning of the marriage, particularly when there are things that will cause real difficulties over the course of the marriage. So the point here is that the seducer, because there was consent on some level at least between the two parties, uh, the seducer can get divorced just as any other person can get divorced, um, and as the mission itself says, needs to pay the fine actually only in the case in which he divorces the woman. Otherwise, they're just married like any other couple. The rapist, however, is obviously different, and the rapist is actually forced to remain married to the woman that he rapes, even though she may possess certain characteristics that, under an ordinary circumstance, would allow him to go to the Beitin and have them force a divorce, which he would not then have to pay. Um, that seems to be exactly what the, uh, what the uh, Mishnah is setting up as its system. Um, and it derives it from the verse in Deuteronomy 22.21 when it says, Velo, with a vav, Velo tihi isha, to him she shall be as a wife, 
i.e. he has to remain married to her whether he wants to or not. And that is a mitzvah to say, it's a positive commandment. Um, now, the Torah itself is ambiguous about whether the woman can refuse in this case. Refusal is mentioned only regarding the father and only in the case of the seducer in Exodus. Seems pretty hard to imagine that the woman wouldn't be allowed to refuse, even according to Torah law, um, and that the Torah is just setting up a system whereby remaining married to the rapist might be the lesser of two evils. Um, but it actually, it certainly seems, as we'll see shortly, that the rabbis assume the woman has all the power here. She's not forced to marry the rapist. She can choose to or choose not to, as the case might be. So the Mishnah, which just listed a series of uh, mumin, a series of blemishes that under ordinary circumstances would allow the, uh, the party who didn't know about them to force a divorce, um, but the rapist is not allowed to use that, then creates a distinction and says as follows, So it distinguishes between the cases of blemishes and a different set of cases. means what if she commits adultery? What if she violates the marriage here. Um, and in that case, in an ordinary case, obviously a divorce would need to be forced. Um, and so too, in the case, in this case, um, the, the rapist, former rapist, I guess at this point, um, can uh, go to the Beitin and force a divorce um, because you're not actually allowed to remain married to the person uh, if the other party commits adultery and that becomes known and fully evidenced and testified to. And the other possibility is what if she's a mamzeret, right? What if she is in the category of one of the women who, or men for that matter, who is not allowed to marry uh, inside of the Jewish community? Um, so if there's a problem uh, outside of one that would be a relationship problem, but a problem that affects the very structure of marriage itself, um, then the rabbis say that um, he's simply not permitted to, to perform this mitzvah taseh of lo tihi ali isha, eno kaima, he can't remain married to her, and that's based on the fact that the verse says, velo tihi ali isha, it has to be an isha haruyalo, it has to be someone that he is permitted to marry. So it's with this that our sugya picks up, and we're right at the top of 40a, and the sugya picks up with the quoting ketzad shoteba atzitzo, etc. Um, how how is it? In what cases is it that he drinks in his vase? In other words, in what cases is the rapist not allowed to get out of the marriage? And Rav Kahana says something interesting. I'm a Rav Kahana. Amrita lishmaita kame de Rav Zvid So Rav Kahana, I guess, was learning this Mishnah, um, and he said it in front of Rav Zvid from Nehardeya, one of the um, towns in, ba in uh, Babylonia where there was a prominent yeshiva. Um, and he had a comment on it. Rav Kahana had a comment on it. He said, hold on a second. Nete ase v'nidcha lota ase. Shouldn't the ase come, the positive commandment of lotihi elisha, the requirement that, remember, the requirement again only on the rapist, not on the woman, but a requirement on the rapist to remain married to this woman if she so desires. Um, shouldn't that come and push off the lota ase? Um, the question is based on something that 
was at the beginning of Masachet Yavamot and a number of other places in which, in fact, contrary to sort of what we would have thought, um, mitzvot say positive commandments, actually override negative commandments in a conflict between the two. One performs the positive commandment as opposed to refraining from the negative commandment. Um, now that's a very strange rule, it seems, because we know that negative commandments are much more severely punished for their violation than positive commandments. Um, but in any case, this Mishnah, according to Rav Kahana, violates that rule, right? There are cases that override, right, the lotase of not being able to be married to certain kinds of women, right, uh, that overrides the ase in this case. Um, and he asks why that should be. Now, Rav Zvid's response is going to make a logical distinction in the rule of nete ase venidche lota ase, of the ase overriding the lota ase, the positive overriding the negative. Um, and in doing so, I think he's going to make a very important and interesting distinction um, that may, in fact, be implicit in that rule itself. So, Amar Li, so he said back to me, right, Rav Kahan is now reporting what Rav Zvid responded to, his, to Rav Kahan's challenge to the Mishnah. And this is what Rav Zvid said back. Hecha amrina nete ase venidche lotase. In what cases would we say that an ase overrides a lotase, a positive commandment overrides a negative commandment? Kukon mila bitsara'at. Like, for example, the case of a circumcision in which there is tsara'at. There's actually a little bit of skin disease um, in the, uh, on, the, um, on the penis in that case. And the problem there is... Mila is a mitzvah say it's required to circumcise. On the other hand, the Torah in Deuteronomy 24.8 says one should guard sara'at, and the rabbis understand that as saying one should not simply cut off the offending piece of skin, um, but you should keep a look, keep an eye on it, see what happens. Um, so instead of sort of distancing oneself from this skin disease by kind of cutting it off one's body, one actually has to um, see how it develops. Um, and so this is a conflict because there's a commandment to guard Sarat and a commandment to right, which, which is accompanied by a lotase, right, of not getting rid of it. Um, but there's the ase of the mila. So it's only in a case where you have a conflict like that, where you, the ase actually overrides the lotase, and he gives sort of the principle behind that. Zelo efshar le kiyume la ase. In such a case, it's impossible, low F-sharp, it's impossible, look, you may, to actually do the assay, right? You can't actually do it in that case unless you ignore or get rid of or push off the lota assay, right? So it's only, according to Rav Zvid, the rule of naite assay venidche lota assay, that positive overrides negative, that actually only applies in a case where the conflict is in the, sort of, in this case, in the organ itself, Right, the same exact thing. So how is he going to distinguish the case of the marriage in the Mishnah? Of Al Hacha, but here in this Mishnah, If she says, right, if the woman says she doesn't want it, right? It's crazy, right? She has no desire to to marry this rapist. Right? And sort of it sounds to our ears almost impossible to make sense of this, um, but it does seem like that was at least a possible solution in a certain social context, um, and maybe even the most just solution, um, at least the woman's not being forced into it, but if she chooses to, um, then, uh, then maybe that's the best solution. Um, but if she says, Lo I have no desire for this, Mi 
is there any assay left at all? Right? In other words, there's since the woman has the power to reject the relationship, um, the mitzvah say, in fact, is contingent already. And since the mitzvah say, right, remember, this is the assay of Velotihi Elisha, she shall be his wife, right, that is entirely contingent on her desire um, to, for the marriage to go forward. There are plenty of cases, and we might even imagine the mass majority of cases, where the assay would just go away of its own accord. Um, so in this case, the assay is actually a very weak assay. It's overridable in other circumstances. And since that possibility exists in any case, it should certainly be true in cases where the marriage would be forbidden for some other reason, right? Because of the, the problematic lineage of one of the parties. We can also maybe see here a gradual weakening of lotihi elisha, the requirement or the, the desire or the idea that it's a good solution for the woman to marry the rapist, right? She should be his wife. Um, I think that principle may, may be weakening here um, and seen less and less as a reasonable response to the situation. Um, as I said before, it's pretty disgusting. We can't even sort of imagine how it would work nowadays. Um, but Again, it certainly seems clear that the Torah thought it was a good solution at least some of the time. But maybe what's happening here for the rabbis is that the societal context is shifting, um, maybe even the context of marriage, if not the economic context as well. Um, and as those contexts shifted, and Lotihi Elisha, this idea that um, that uh, the, the marriage of the rapist to the, to, to the victim is in some sense a good solution, as that sort of becomes less and less tenable, um, the law itself shifts. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.